Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Katerina Gisoulius, who is Professor Emeritus of Econometrics and Empirical Economics at the University of Copenhagen. Her work has been on uh, empirical macro models and associated issues. Welcome, Katerina. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, we want to talk about uh, one of your recent survey paper searching for a theory that fits the data. I love it. <laughs> a personal research odyssey. Um, th this has been sort of a problem with uh, economics, uh, not just economics, actually. It, it is now almost every scientific discipline. Um, replication has become a problem for papers. So things work beautifully when you write a paper and then when somebody else tries to do it, it doesn't quite work. <laughs> so, so, so you're looking for the data that, that fits your hypothesis in some way. Um, but we're talking about here um, uh, the co-integrated vector autoregressive methodology, CVAR methodology, and how it has evolved over the last uh, 30 years. You say it describes major steps in the economic development, discusses problems to be solved when confronting theory with the data, and as a solution proposes a so-called theory-consistent CBAR scenario. Um, as I mentioned, Katarina, I, I, um, I had a little bit of macroeconomics in the mid-90s, uh, and I haven't touched macroeconomics since then. <laughs> so I probably lost most of it. Um, but uh, before we get the details of the paper, uh, could you put, so what exactly is CBAR? Uh, how do you describe that? Well, um, CVAR uh, or CVAR, as I usually call it for short, I mean, is a, 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 a time series process, autoregressive time series process, which is uh, in its simplest form, it's just the, what you call uh, a, a VAR, uh, autoregressive uh, vector, autoregressive process. But uh, the um, C stands for co-integration, and that means, in a sense, that we are able to, uh, say, reformulate the model so that we can distinguish between uh, structures in the long run, which is, are described by the co-integrated uh, relations and uh, structures in the short run and even sometimes also in the medium run. And that means, in a sense, that you can suddenly uh, uh, ask a large number of questions, which you couldn't do before, because you can separate between the, uh, the say, the long run and the, the uh, feedback dynamics uh, to the long run. You can, you can actually ask questions about uh, the shocks which are, are uh, say, pushing the economy and so on. So it, it actually offered me with. Um, 
numerous new uh, uh, questions to ask to, to, to economic data. This was really exciting. <laughs> yeah, and so Sivar, um, so the, one of the issues that you talk about in the paper is that we have these theories um, that sometimes when you tested the data, it doesn't appear to work even though most people seems to believe uh, believe in those theories. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, you know, I was at University of Chicago, so I, I just uh, mentioned that uh, so people will understand my bias <laughs> in some sense in our conversation. Uh, but uh, you say these theories, uh, for example, Milton Friedman's monetarism, uh, monetaristic uh, inflation, for instance, yeah, uh, it doesn't quite work, uh, you say. So, so how do you reach that conclusion? Uh, sorry, what, what was the last question? Uh, so, how do you how do you um, demonstrate that data is not really fitting? That yeah, theory? I think one has to understand that say uh, traditionally economists usually looked at at one or a few uh, aspects. Uh, uh, of the theory model, and they they actually uh, uh, took the the model to the data with the purpose of of just uh, answering that question. What we do is a more general uh, way, more general uh, approach, and that means, in a sense, that what you what you get is one could say uh, um, say uh, uh, you 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 can answer uh, the hypothesis of, of of interest but you also get a lot of, of additional uh, uh, information say like uh, feedback uh, uh, dynamics and there are many things in the economic model that people usually say impose uh, uh, on the data from the on, uh, uh, from the outset for example you uh, assume that you know which are the driving forces you uh, you know also how the uh, say the uh, the dynamic adjustment is taking place and uh, uh, and uh, you as you assume that there are long run uh, price neutrality you impose that on the data as well and i do nothing of this i just start from the scratch and and, uh, and test everything first from the outset. And that means in the sense, uh, say in, uh, now in, in, in relation to Friedman's uh, uh, monetary <laughs> theory, uh, because I used um, Romer's book on macroeconomics and I took one chapter from, from uh, that book and, and uh, I said, I will now try to somehow check everything in that chapter to see if it actually works. And then I found a, a stable money demand relation, which people then said it was a, a prerequisite for, for monetary policy to work. And I was very happy, but then it turned out that for example, that uh, money stock instead of, of, of being the one that pushes inflation was the one that adjusted. And and so on. So so the exogenous forces were very different from what you would have expected if the theory was okay. And so so this is sort of a general problem of generalization, right? So you you start with a hypothesis, you can prove or disprove that hypothesis uh, with some data. Uh, but the theory itself doesn't generalize. We have the same problem in, in machine learning, for example. Um, you know, we can take some data and fit a beautiful model, beautiful yeah. machine learning model. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it fails when it, it, when it uh, um, shown data that hasn't seen yet, right? So generalization is a, is a broad sort of mathematical problem. Yeah, and, it is. And I think we are, it's sort of the same issue here, right? Yeah. Sure, because I mean, uh, <laughs> economy is very complex, and it's not easy to to somehow uh, sort out what is correct or what is not correct. And and the theory generally is uh, so much simpler in a way. <laughs> and if you take the macroeconomic data, for example, you know that there is just one data set. 
because I mean, there's one series of unemployment, there is one series of GDP growth, there is one series of interest rate and so on. But uh, in order to understand these, you very often have many different economic models. So there are one data and several models, economic models. And, and in my view, I thought it was extremely important not to, to, to assume uh, from the outset one theory, but instead to formulate something, say a model that was so uh, general that uh, it could, um, it could uh, uh, encompass, uh, uh, say, uh, several of the, or all the economic models. Mm -hmm. And by testing, one would then in the end uh, uh, come closer and closer to the one that was, say, the best empirical description. Right, that was right. that was the idea. Yeah. And so um, can we go back to sort of the guts of CWAR? So, um, so, so you said it's an autoregressive methodology, uh, co-integrated, meaning there are multiple attributes that you are sort of bringing together. Um, and uh, so, so one of the issues, as you say, uh, is that you have to have something that works in the short run, in the medium run, and in the long run. Yeah. Um, if, if I take, I guess, uh, let me ask you this way, there is a bias toward elegance, right? We, we see this in cosmology, we see this in physics, um, but I think there's a similar concept in economics too, that nobody likes complex theories. You know, if if I ha if I come up with a, an equation that has you know 50 and 20 variables in it, um, it, it it seems much less elegant to somebody saying it works this way, right? Yeah, it so, is. So the seeking elegance probably leading us to um, non-generalizable theories, and 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 once it gets a life, I guess it it continues. People start to believe in it, uh, yeah. and it goes on like that, right? Is that the is that, the, is that the issue? That, that is a very <laughs> adequate description, I think, because uh, things are so complex. And of course, I mean, we all want to make it more simple in order to, to grasp the complexity. <laughs> and I think uh, it should be made simple, but not too simple. Because if they, at, at one point you lose something very important. Uh, yes, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And that is exactly what I have been, uh, when I say uh, searching for a theory that fits the data, that is exactly what I'm, I have been uh, searching for. Say the theory, which is not uh, too simple, but still uh, not too complex, because if, the, if it's too complex, it means that you can't grasp it any longer. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So could we talk a little bit, uh, Katrina, about sort of the inflation, let's say. I know that you, you looked at many, many countries. You looked at Denmark against Germany, and, and you sort of tested some of the predictions of the theory. Yeah. And it doesn't quite it doesn't quite show it, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I tried to understand, uh, because I first uh, fully believed in, in monetary inflation, uh, in Friedman's uh, claim that uh, inflation is, uh, is uh, always and everywhere a monetary problem. And uh, to some extent, I might even believe it now also, but in a completely different context. But, but anyway, I, I tried to see first with Danish data. Is it the case that, uh, uh, say, money expansion in excess of, say, the, the uh, long-run stable money demand relation actually leads to, to inflation? And there was absolutely no evidence of it, absolutely zero. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, perhaps it is because Denmark is a very small country and small economy, and we are very dependent on, on Germany. So perhaps I should look at ger German money demand instead. And then I found something which I think actually was quite interesting, because I found, that, first of all, that there was a, a clear uh, structural break in the, at the beginning of the 80s, and they had to split the sample. 
And uh, then uh, the first part of the sample, in a sense, uh, fitted very well with, with what you would have expected. I mean, money was actually causing inflation and uh, it seemed like a monetary rule was sufficient to, to control inflation and so on. But after 83, I mean, I, I still got evidence of a monetary policy rule, but it had no effect on inflation any longer. And that was, in my view, very puzzling. <laughs> and uh, in the end, I mean, I, I think I came to the conclusion that it was because in, in the mid-80s, uh, Germany and Europe generally uh, deregulated financial uh, movements. And uh, that was that uh, clearly uh, caused a, a fundamental change in the in, in the macroeconomic mechanisms. And so in some sense, everybody is right then when uh, Friedman was proposing it, uh, there was there was evidence um, of monetary um, inflation. When we say inflation here, we are talking about consumer price inflation, right? Yeah, so I have looked basically at that because it, it, it's more coherently uh, defined uh, over different economies. I mean, there was also the problem of measurements in economics because the, the economic variables are not always I mean, measuring what, what what, what the theory would expect them to do. Yeah, and so yeah. you say in the mid 80s, there was a structural change, sort of financial deregulation, yes. a structural change. So what is the mechanism, what, what, is, what specifically uh, changed this connection between expansion of money and inflation? I think the, the uh, in my view, what I find is that the strongest effect was in the foreign currency markets because i mean there you have the you have the you have the nominal exchange rate and it should somehow reflect the, the relative uh, costs between two economies or two areas and uh, and it wasn't i i didn't find that effect at all instead of course nominal exchange rate is also being influenced by uh, spe speculative transactions in the foreign exchange. And they seem to be so much more dominant. And they didn't drive the, uh, the nominal exchange rate back to, uh, to fundamental values. On the contrary, they <laughs> there was a clear evidence that nominal exchange rates were moving away from, from long-run fundamental values. And of course, that has enormous implications for, for, for importing and exporting ex enterprises because they have to compete in a very competitive environment. <laughs> and, uh, and it basically, essentially, uh, in my, uh, according to my findings, uh, uh, prevented them to, to increase uh, prices in, in order to say, uh, in order to compensate for the big movements in, in nominal exchange rates. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think uh, that is the closest I can come to an explanation why, I mean, inflation uh, was kept so, so, so low. Because you could see also that instead of, of changing prices, they improved the productivity which is the only the other possible uh, solution. And, uh, and uh, we, we also saw in that period that, that enterprises were outsourcing production. They were asking, uh, 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 say, the uh, employees to, to work very hard to produce more per hour than before. And uh, they were, they were uh, uh, say, replacing uh, also employees, workers with, with ro robots and so on and so on. And all these in order to somehow uh, improve productivity and to be able to compete in a very competitive market where, where they couldn't really, where nominal exchange rate did not do the job for them. 
Right. And so, so are you arguing, Catherine, if I understand this correctly, so mid-80s, um, yeah. did, the, did the speculation in the currency markets suddenly increase quite a bit? Uh, I, I'm just, uh, uh, what was the sort of the regime shift uh, from a mechanistic perspective that, that broke this connection? I mean, uh, it, it was the uh, the um, financial deregulation of capital movements. So, I mean, I can give one example in, for Denmark. I moved, I'm actually from Finland, and I moved to Denmark in the, uh, in, in the beginning of the 80s. And I, I then wanted to uh, take, uh, I think it was 50,000 uh, Finnish mark, which is not a, a lot of money. <laughs> Uh, to move it to Denmark, and I had to have the permission from the central bank to do it. And nowadays, I mean, uh, if you think of, of the capital that moves across borders in a, in a fraction of a second, <laughs> it's just huge. So it was, uh, it was uh, at that point, I mean, it was, it was a very different economy. And of course, uh, because the capital could not move freely over the, 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 say, the country borders, it was also possible somehow to, uh, to keep it in, in, in the country, uh, to, to uh, have a competitive uh, uh, de-evaluations and, and so on. All this was impossible after you, you 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 opened up the economies, and it yeah. solved some problems. But my claim is that it also created some problems. Right. Yeah. Your story brings memories to me, Catalina. So I moved from India to the United States in the mid eighties, yeah. and I had to get twenty five dollars. Yeah. And and twenty five dollars, <laughs> I had to get some sort of central bank clearance. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the mid '80s, so yeah, yeah, so all those sort of constraints went away, and um, and so in some sense, money creating inflation was true in such a very constrained, um, localized markets, right? Uh, money cannot go anywhere. Yeah, and I, I, I actually I have to say that I'm not even terribly convinced that it, it created inflation then. But of course, it, it allowed for, for uh, uh, say, inflationary expectations. And they were the ones that actually were important. Right, right. Yeah. And, and it's consumer price inflation. I think you make a distinction. And I was thinking when I was reading the paper, you know, we went through an experiment in the US. And I guess you have done similar, you know, a few trillion dollars of stimulus as part of the pandemic, uh, yeah. it hasn't really uh, gone into consumer price uh, price inflation, but it has right. really gone into asset price inflation, right? Exactly. Real estate is through the roof and, yeah. you know, even stock markets and so on. So that, yeah. that is sort of proving what, what you were uh, yeah. hypothesizing, I think. And that is that lots of evidence of, of say, excess money leading to, to uh, say, uh, stock price inflation and house price inflation also so but but not the consumer price inflation yeah it's a without knowing all the all the details it's a bit counterintuitive it, it uh, is <laughs> <laughs> but but the moment you start really understanding it it's it's not uh, counterintuitive any longer. I think it is very reasonable. But, but you know, also when you have uh, so much house price inflation and so much uh, uh, stock price inflation just now, I mean, you, you actually have no long run uh, price neutrality. And, uh, and as I mentioned in the beginning, that is something that is uh, just uh, routinely assumed. And if you do not allow the data to speak freely about it, you will not re realize that that is a very, very important problem to solve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah so it has a lot of implications for policy. So would you say that when the money bucket is taken away by the central banks, would you say that if it is sort of artificial asset price inflation, 
Would you say that would go back? That's a very hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make some money in the stock market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, one can point out what is, uh, say, uh, problematic and uh, whether the, the policy then works is much harder because uh, there are so many things to, to, to somehow consider. And uh, so I, I have spent my life trying to understand structures but uh, I would be scared to death to have to, <laughs> uh, to come with policy advice because I think it, that is very, very difficult. Yeah, but in the status quo, I guess this gives central banks, when they look at the typical metrics like yeah. CPI and so on, you don't see inflation. So they can yeah. sort of go back and say, uh, it, yeah. there's no inflation, we can continue at low interest rates forever. Exactly. That's what's happening in many cases, right? Yeah, I think what one could say, well, we need to have, uh, for example, you could have a higher reserve uh, ratios, force them onto the, uh, the, the private banks. So that, for example, uh, that would put a damper on, on, on house prices. Uh, you, you could say, well, you have to have um, 20% uh, First, you have to save 20%, and then you can get 80% in loan, for example. That we also somehow put a downward pressure on the house prices and so on. I think when it comes to uh, stock prices, then uh, I think to some extent there uh, it's a question of trying to restrict, uh, say, credit that goes into the the. the into the stock market. And how to do it is not so easy. But, but um, for example, uh, 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 Tobin originally, uh, when he talked about his, his so-called Tobin tax, he suggested it to be on, on uh, uh, foreign, foreign currency transactions, because he was actually worried about the, uh, the, the, the the fact that speculative uh, behavior in the, in the foreign currency market could actually lead to this kind of persistent imbalances, as we see. And I think that that would be a, a, such a transaction uh, uh, tax, I think, would be really very good. Hmm. So, so speculations um, and Speculations leading to sort of um, long um, deviations or excursions from expectations. But again, from, from an intuition perspective, if there's speculation that bubble has to, has to burst at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they do. And, and of course, I mean, you have these very long swings and you have, if you look at the data, you will see that Stock prices, I mean, I have a graph that goes from uh, just after the Second World War uh, to up to today. And I took uh, Dow Jones uh, stock price index and I, uh, I, I, I graphed it in relation to, to GDP. And you will see there are some uh, really super cycles in the data. First, I mean, after World War II, when you had to rebuild Europe, and after the war and so on, when everything went up, then came the 70s with the inflationary expectations and high interest rates and so on, and a long downward swing down. And then in the 80s, when the when, when you had deregulation of financial markets and, and an enormous credit expansion, and then you had the long upward spring, and you still have it. But on these, say, super cycles, you see these medium-run cycles, which are perhaps, uh, say, five, six, seven, eight years long. So there is a lot of... of um, uh, so spec speculation uh, creates a lot of, of, of movements into that, which seem to be, uh, in my view, are not 
are not re related to anything, uh, say, fundamental. Right. Yeah. yeah, so I can understand the super cycles. Um, <laughs> I think it's sort of self-reinforcing, right? Once you are in a, in a sort of a long-term cycle, you yeah. borrow, you lever up, yeah. you start to get more, uh, more returns, you lever further up. Yeah. And, and at some point, <laughs> at the top of the mountain, uh, things come rolling down. We don't know yeah. when that is. Timing that is really, really difficult. Yeah. So these super cycles are sort of self-reinforcing. Yeah, uh, for people, right? Yeah, but so so are also I think the 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 medium run, say the, the six, seven, eight year long cycles, uh, because in a sense, I mean, uh, it is expectations in the market, and and if expectations now are that the 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 the, the, the prices go up, they will they will actually uh, uh, act accordingly. <laughs> And then prices will go up, and that will confirm <laughs> they were correct in in the expectations. And that 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 process is to some extent self reinforcing, and you can see it very 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 strongly. For example, in connection with the IT bubble, which was and that was a huge bubble. Yeah. 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 And. Um... And so, so when you're in the bubble, you don't know it. Uh, I mean, we see the same thing in financial markets, right? So um, generally speaking, when markets are going up, people take more leverage, they invest more, and things go up even further. Yes. Uh, some sort of curious phenomenon uh, in some ways, Katarina, that has happened more recently, which is there are a lot more retail investors in the markets today um, with, you know, they have these apps on their iPhones, you know, uh, and they can they can essentially day trade. Some estimates say there are 20, 25 million day traders in the US alone. Yeah. Um, and so that dynamic actually in some sense changed because it used to be the hedge funds, um, you know, sort of pumping up uh, things in one direction <laughs> until <laughs> they leave. Uh, but now the retail market has, you know, sort of um, changed that, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and so is speculation, the speculation requires sort of concentration. In other words, uh, are, are, uh, the companies have to be big, right, uh, to play in the markets. And to have a real effect on speculation for a longer time, they have to be big, right? Yeah. And uh, and as a matter of fact, I mean, I would be very afraid to to answer th these questions because, I mean, I can see the the, the um, uh, imbalances created, but uh, it's not really my research area. <laughs> so I will be, uh, I would not like to say anything which which is just my own guesses. <laughs> Yeah, so we, so we know speculation exists. So go, going back to the CWAR methodology. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about, so you're talking about here uh, sort of a difference between rational expectations hypothesis and uh, sort of imperfect information, right? Imperfect knowledge, yeah, based. So could you contrast between the two? Um, what, what do you mean by these two things? Well, first of all, I think I have to explain why I got so uh, so so happy about these imperfect knowledge-based uh, uh, expectations when I stumbled on them, and that because what was uh, uh, problematic in in the empirical analysis was that I I realized, for example, the the big uh, parity relationships like the, uh, uh, say, uncovered interest rate parity, the, the uh, purchasing power, power parity, the Fisher parity, the term spread, and so on. These parities were, were, were generally assumed to be stationary, meaning that you could move away from them, but, but you would get back to, to uh, fundamental in, in a reasonably uh, short period. And and uh, when I looked at the data, they were clearly uh, these deviations from 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 say uh, equilibrium states 
were very, very persistent. Mm. Also too persistent that one could say, oh, it, just because I've been there, are some sort of in there, Russia and so on. They were, they were more persistent than that. And I had to understand why they were so persistent. Meaning, in the sense that they had a non-stationary uh, deviation from from uh, equi equilibrium, sure. and um, and I said, well, I, 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 say the um, uh, rational expectations hypothesis usually said that, well, you know, uh, economic actors know these. <coughs> disparities, they know they are stationary, hence it would be irrational if they drive prices away from that. They could just be pushed, pushed off, but then they will, will start adjusting back again. That would be rational. And I said, this is not what I see in the data. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I came across uh, some work by uh, Roman Friedman, from New York University and, and uh, Michael Goldberg, and they were discussing this kind of, of uh, imperfect knowledge-based expectations. And they had uh, also uh, illustrated it with, with, a, uh, with an example of purchasing power parity and interest rate, uh, uh, uncovered interest rate parity, which was exactly the same uh, problem I had been working with. So when they were just, they were saying, oh, you know, they, uh, we have this, this empirical evidence and, uh, and we don't know really what to do with it. And I said, I actually have exactly the same and I, I know how to analyze it empirically. So we started working, collaborating. Yeah. And so, so these uh, relationships, purchasing power parity, uncovered interest rate parity and so on, uh, so there is an expectation, as you say, they are stable. Uh, I don't know if stable is the right term, yeah, but stationary. Stationary, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if, when it, uh, takes an, it takes a deviation from expectation, it is expected to come back. But what you're saying is that we don't see these things coming back to an equilibrium no. No. point. No. And so when they take an excursion, it is, it is sort of a structural change. So, I mean, I'm thinking about PPP, for example. Uh, yeah. The little I remember about PPP is also related to, um, you know, uh, um, currency um, currency differentials between countries and so on, right? So, that's, there are different mechanisms, uh, at least on the surface, that would bring it back, but doesn't appear to happen. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't think... It's not really a structural break or something, or, 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 but it is just the, the question that the, the theory used to, to explain, uh, say, the movements, hmm. I think needs to, to, to be modified. So instead of rational expectations, I, I think if I uh, replace those with um, imperfect knowledge-based expectations, and I have written, I have two papers, one where I try to explain these say the, the PPP and UIP with rational expe uh, rational expectations mo monetary model and one where I use the imperfect knowledge-based uh, expectations. And uh, empirically, I reject basically all hypotheses in the first case and I can, I, I, I accept, uh, cannot reject uh, say any of the hypotheses in the second case because it really explains the data extremely well. And but I should also say it was uh, not it was a major task to formulate the imperfect knowledge-based expectations into what you also already mentioned the theory consistent CVAR scenario. It was very very difficult, but I did it and 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 it just the data just completely seemed to fit. Yeah, I mean, um, without knowing a lot about it, Katarina, it makes sort of intuitive sense to me. So um, you call it technology-based expectations? No, I think it is uh, the question that uh, maybe our pe people are doing all this. <laughs> and uh, and uh, 
humans are, are, are not always that rational. They are rational in a sense, but possibly not uh, uh, rational the way, uh, say, the, uh, the economic model prescribes it. Because in a sense, uh, I, mean, I, I just have to, <laughs> I was, uh, I was, um, from the outset, I was a little bit, I didn't really believe in rational expectations because I had so many economic uh, colleagues and nobody were <laughs> reacted and <laughs> behaved like that. <laughs> right, so, right. so I think there is, uh, because in the, in the imperfect knowledge-based expectations has, uh, there is a very important assumption in that, that uh, uh, economic actors are loss averse, not just risk averse, but loss averse. And that means that, you know, when you drive, uh, when nominal exchange rate, for example, uh, moves away from relative prices, so that you have, say, a serious degree of real exchange rate persistence. When, when the nominal exchange rate moves away too, too far away, then of course, I mean, uh, then you've got the sleepless nights. <laughs> Investors begin to say, oh, this will not really end well. And that means that the, the, they, they experience what we call loss, loss aversion. When the gap effect becomes very, very large, then you, the, the loss aversion sets in. And um, that has a lot of explanatory power. There's sort of a positive feedback there too, right? So uh, when things move in the wrong direction, um, there's loss aversion that sort of get positive feedback and it continues yeah. uh, in that direction, right? Yeah, because in, I always look at the problem in a system, and that means that you can have positive feedback in one uh, direction. And then suddenly in another direction, uh, you, you get this uh, negative feedback. Uh, you, you get back uh, uh, something, you get the reaction that goes back to, 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 to steady state. So for example, in the PPP, UIP example, you have interest rates and you have exchange rate. And what I have found that is with respect to, to US UK data at the, in the in the uh, uh, medium run it is uh, uh, exchange rate changes that that uh, that are exogenous that drives the market in the very long run it is interest rates the nominal interest rates that takes over so they change the the in the medium run you have one sort of of, of of exogenous forces in the long run, you have another one. And that can explain the movements mm. in, a, I think, very precisely, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, sort of uh, changing the gears uh, in an automobile, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're going in the second gear for a while and then you, you shift to the third gear. And yeah, yeah. It's sort of a regime change and different factors, different attributes work. And so, so this is why you're saying from a theory perspective, uh, suppose I come up with a long, long run theory uh, and it doesn't explain anything in the, in the medium term or the short term. No, uh, nothing. Yeah, it, it is sort of fitting, it's sort of fitting the data uh, to just answer that question. Um, and, but what would you say so if I take a model like that, you know, which is sort of simplistic, uh, looking at some horizon that is very defined, um, does it does it work from a policy perspective? Suppose my you know my policy requirement is a long run, very long run policy. So I just need a long run prediction. I don't care what happens in the medium term or short term. Can you can you take the sort of status quo models in 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 that context? I can explain, uh, say, using the empirical results. I can I can uh, explain what happens in the long run, and then 
in the medium run and uh, meaning <laughs> meaning that uh, somebody who is very good at, at, at policy should be able to say well then I think we should do this and this but I dare not don't ask me <laughs> about policy advice because in a sense uh, I would um, I, I would not really dare to, to give you <laughs> yeah yeah. What, what you're saying, I think, if I understand this correctly, Katarina, that if you take sort of the status quo theories yeah. and you say, let me make a prediction based on these theories and let me test those predictions, what you're saying is that you don't see, you don't see those predictions to be true, <laughs> um, right? Uh, you know, if you look at real data. No, I think the, why, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm very often say very re reluctant to, to, to come with predictions of what will happen is that, you know, when you have uh, very persistent deviations from, uh, from, say, a long run relation, it can only be so persistent because it is compensated by a similar persistent somewhere else. So, uh, because otherwise, if you have just one, if only, um, say, nominal exchange rate would move persistently, they couldn't really do it because, I mean, there are forces in the market that would somehow make it impossible. But because you have um, also persistence in uh, interest rate differential between the, the, the economy, and that compensates. Uh, so that together they can somehow, it looks like a, a certain balance and, and, uh, and it can actually uh, go on for a very, very long time because, I mean, <laughs> they keep each other in, 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 in balance. But usually it is a very fragile balance because, right. be, because it, is, uh, it consists of two imbalances. And uh, you need just one shock somewhere in the system and, and it can collapse. But it's almost impossible to know when. Yeah. It's a timing, that's, it's a timing. The that's timing, a yeah, yeah. I would be very rich if I would know the timing. So, so it's a bit like winding, winding a spring. Um, we don't know when it's going to break. Yeah. Um, we can really make predictions. If I say X plus Y is a constant, and I, I see X, you know, um, very different from um, equilibrium levels. Yeah. I cannot really say X is going to come back to the equilibrium level because what you're saying is that Y is now compensating for yeah. X's move away from equilibrium. Yeah. And that that persistence could be there for a long time. So yeah. you might you might die waiting for it. <laughs> exactly. for that to break. Yeah. Just as an example, I mean, uh, I told my friends uh, already end of, of, of the 90s that we will soon have a financial crisis. <laughs> and it took 10 years. <laughs> and then it came. <laughs> but at that time, I mean, they... Uh, they many, many times, oh, yes, but you said that already last year or the year before. So I stopped saying anything in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes, a, it makes a lot more intuitive sense to me now. So when there is persistent um, variations, it appears to be self-reinforcing at some level because there's speculation. Yeah. And speculation is going to get higher leverage, and so it's a continue to deviate away. Yeah. And at some point, it's going to break, but we have no clue as to what that timing might be, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> 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 and I, I, in my view, I think policy should be not trying to to somehow guess when that uh, when the break comes but instead avoid these uh, persistent deviations. Yeah, so going back to policy again, um, from a central bank perspective, uh, based on your sort of hypothesis here and, and uh, ideas, what would be, how would the, how would the central bank uh, policies change? Um, 
Yeah, I think the first, uh, I think first of all, central banks should uh, give up the idea that that the, the, the main thing is to control inflation. Because uh, that means that the focus is, in a sense, on something which is uh, the market takes, takes uh, is, is already uh, somehow uh, takes um, responsibility for that one. <laughs> but I think they should be more, much more worried about house price inflation and uh, and uh, stock price inflation. And in a sense, this is also something we discuss a lot here in, in, in Denmark. And you can say that, uh, well, you know, we have, uh, we have uh, uh, house prices have increased a lot. And uh, the question is, is it, is it the bubble or is it just an imbalance? I would say it is an imbalance because we had also uh, a period when we had a real bubble that was uh, before 2007. And you can easily see that uh, you cannot explain the increase in prices there with, say, the level of interest rates and uh, the level of income and the level of financial wealth, all of them influence house prices and the demand for housing. So in the sense, uh, uh, many of my colleagues will say, well, you know, it, it, we can explain the, the house prices. But still, if you look at how much uh, uh, house prices have increased compared to, to, to consumer prices, I mean, they have increased uh, enormously much more and uh, and uh, and then we say yeah but of course i mean since the interest rate is now so low it doesn't matter because they can still manage to uh, to pay uh, uh, interest rate payments and and uh, amort and uh, and uh, pay off the, the the debt but the problem is of course at the moment this the, the 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 house housing market is subject to a crisis and and prices start falling a lot of people will will suddenly have have debt which is greater than the the, the house price and they will be insolvent and that has enormous implications and we saw it already i mean in in, in the 2007 crisis and uh, so many people uh, was came, uh, went bankrupt and they could not get divorced because they could sell the house and and so on and so on and many enterprises could not obtain a new loan because the loan they had was <laughs> was bigger than than uh, the worth of, uh, of, of, of the estate they had. So in that sense, I think it is an imbalance and we should not allow imbalances. That is my... Yeah, I was also wondering, Catherine, there's a little bit of a structural change, meaning if the pandemics are sort of a systemic thing, um, yeah. you know, it's going to be with us for a long time, let's say. Yeah. Um, we see a movement away from cities, into suburbs, and if people in general now um, evaluate their decision to buy a home to be of higher importance, let's say, so so given you know set of choices, they pick the house buying decision to be more dominant. Yeah. Uh, in other words, there, there is a, there's a higher demand for houses suddenly yeah. because of the pandemic. Yes. And uh, and and that is going to drive prices up too, right? Yeah, because, I mean, we also have to uh, take account of the fact that during the lockdown of the economies and people could not really spend the money because they could not travel, they could not go to restaurants. They had, uh, I mean, the amount of, of, of 
private saving is enormous in this period. And <laughs> at the same time, you have an interest rate which is uh, basically almost negative, zero and negative. And uh, you have a lot of time because, I mean, you cannot uh, do so much. <laughs> so you have to spend your time on something. And it could, for example, be to let's now buy a new house and a, a beautiful house. And, and in Denmark also the demand for housing increased enormously in this period. Right. Yeah, as you say, it's the leverage issue. So uh, if you're yeah. taking debt, expecting the house is worth something. Yeah. And if there is a shock in the system and prices come down, then you're suddenly insolvent. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's the same thing that happened in 2007. There was an additional problem of all the mortgages um, being bundled up that people buying those mortgages did not know what they were buying. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what's going on now. Uh, one thing we know is that uh, we don't learn from our mistakes. We will, we will make them again. <laughs> There's no question in my mind that somehow I think that people do not believe house prices will fall. <laughs> it, it's so fundamental somewhere. And that is also a little bit irrational because house prices increase and house prices fall. <laughs> but people do not believe it. And, uh, and I think there are expectations that you, know, uh, you can always invest in, in real estate because that is safe. Yeah, so, so in conclusion, uh, Katrina, could you sort of summarize? Let me, let me see if I, if I understand this correctly. So correct me if, if uh, this is not the right way to think about it. Yeah. Um, in, in most economic theories, we have some simplified assumptions, uh, such as people make rational decisions, rational choices, and so on. Um, these simplified theories are sort of fitting for some specific question that the theory is trying to answer. So they're, they're not generalizable. They are, you know, heavily fitted uh, for some specific problem. And so both of our assumptions and the methodology uh, in the economic theory arena appear to be faulty. <laughs> and, and if so, None of these things really work as we expect them to work in a very general sense, you know, in all regimes, in all time, time horizons and so on. So then the question is, can we, can we have an alternative? Can we have an alternative view as to how things work? And you have some, some hypotheses there, right? And the related question then would be, if this were true, what are the implications for policy from a central bank? So, so do you want to sort of summarize your your hypothesis and maybe some ideas about policy again? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I think to, one has to uh, first of all understand that the the economic models and the empirical uh, uh, reality or the empirical statistical models they are two very different entities because in, in many, many ways. And you possibly also uh, realize that I talked about my, uh, about, uh, my reading through the Hovelmo's uh, old monograph, The Probability Approach to Economics, which influenced me a lot because there he actually discusses, say, the difference between uh, inference based on experimental data and inference based on non-experimental data. And, and, and sure, macro data are non-experimental because we cannot control them. We cannot control the Ketteris paribus assumptions and so on. So we have to have a different approach. And, uh, and when you ask about the theory and, uh, and my work, because I tried to, to uh, address this question by formulating this, um, say, the uh, theory consistent CVAR scenarios. Because in that sense, in, in, in those, I tried to address everything that one could address, all the hypotheses that you can address uh, using, uh, say, uh, 
our model, the CVAR model. And, and this, this scenario is a set of, of hypotheses that somehow describe what would we find, what empirical reg regularities would we find in the data if the theory model was correct. And, uh, and there I, I have come to the conclusion that if you take the talk about macroeconomics, then I find very often that Keynesian economics is, explains the data much better than, say, the, uh, the, the neoclassical uh, 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 models that we, we, we usually nowadays have been entertained. I would also say that Keynesian, old-time Keynesian uh, economics is not sufficient because, I mean, we also have to include... Uh, the financial market behavior much better in these in such models. We also have to replace rational expectations with imperfect knowledge based ex uh, uh, expectations. And and you said that that um, we, we are not describing rational behavior. And in a sense, I think I, I am actually explaining rational. Uh, behavior. What is irrational is the idea to think that economic agents are believing in in the very abstract models that uh, economists uh, usually like, <laughs> and 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 they use them when they forecast the the future. I think that is it. This is it. It's called rational, but I think that is irrational. So in that. In that sense, uh, what I would say, I would rather actually rely on Keynesian economics and I would include uh, financial market behavior much more in, in, in macroeconomic models than is usually done and in a different way than it's done just now. And, uh, and I would uh, try to introduce imperfect knowledge-based expectations. Right. So, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so one aspect uh, is really the uh, financial markets have a huge effect, huge impact on outcomes, right? And yeah. we also have significant concentration in financial markets, you know, yeah. with investment banks, hedge funds, and so on. Um, and so behaviors of large financial market participants do have a, a huge impact on outcomes. Um, yeah. and, and that is not in the models, I would imagine. Yeah. Right? yeah, and it needs to be because, I mean, um, I would usually say traditionally uh, the models were, were, were built based on the assumption of, of uh, say, two driving forces, the, the real productivity-based force and uh, the, the inflationary-based force. But uh, obviously, we need the third force, which is the financial market force, in order to understand uh, our economies. And it is, uh, it is not just that you can say the causality comes purely from financial markets to the real economy, because there are feedback effects, I mean, uh, both ways. So in, in that sense, it's quite complex. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, from a central bank perspective, uh, attempting to control consumer price inflation seems like a, a lost, lost cause. Yeah. But you also mentioned that central banks should really pay attention to asset price inflation. So real yeah. estate, stock markets, because if there is some sort of a break in those, in those markets, it has huge effect on the entire economy, right? So, yeah, yeah. But can they can they really do anything? I mean, uh, what would they do if they if they you know sort of see this bubbles, um, speculative bubbles form? Yeah, because uh, I think they can uh, they can they, uh, they have the power to to influence leverage in uh, say private bank uh, lending has been, I mean, almost, uh, there have been almost no restrictions. So, so in that sense, uh, when I started first my, my uh, academic uh, studies, I remember that there was this idea that 
the, the, the velocity of, of money should should be more or, more or less uh, stationary. So if you look at the velocity of money today, I mean, <laughs> it is an, an enormously increasing variable. I mean, it has an enormous trend. And that is because uh, the leverage has been uh, uh, completely uh, yeah. Yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so these metrics are useful as a diagnostic. It's yeah. useful as a diagnostic for central banks to to really think about. Um, but it's not as if I understand this correctly. It's not about consumer price inflation. It's really about asset. Price. It's about assets because I think the the uh, consumer price inflation has to do with speculation in the financial market, in the foreign exchange. Foreign exchange. Yeah. Foreign exchange. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this has been great, Katarina. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Okay. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> yeah. So bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.